the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. Today is Saturday, April the 18th, and I'm your host, Elon Martin. With me in the studio today is my co-host, Harrison Kelly. Hello. And editors of SOT.net, Shane Lachance. Hello, everybody. And William Barbet. A wonderful greetings. We'll be covering a few different topics today that are in the news and invite you to join in with your comments, thoughts, or brief rants. You can call us here at 718-508-9499, and that number again is 718-508-9499. Okay, Uh, today we're going to start the show with a discussion of some really huge developments about the mother of all major human events in history, Mother Nature. And boy, is she beginning to fume. Shane, you've been on top of some really weird things lately that have been happening around the planet recently. What's going on? Uh, so I figured we'd start out talking about the weather. And, you know, it's funny because usually the weather is one of those, like, safe topics and, you know, kind of neutral things that you kind of talk about in the beginning of conversation. But when you don't want to talk about anything serious that might yeah, offend someone. Exactly, right? exactly. But the way things are, are kind of been going on the planet, you know, for... For a while now, uh, it's kind of the um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the new norm for it to just to be you know so strange. And you know, while we're kind of going into spring, and uh, most of the northern hemisphere is going to spring, you know, we're still seeing uh, some pretty wild snowstorms. Um, just uh, just yesterday, uh, Wyoming they got hit by ten inches of snow. Uh, they which led to a, a seventy car pileup. Um, just a few days earlier in New Zealand, uh, they got an early snowfall and even in Mexico, they got eight inches of snow. Um, do we know how they're explaining the snowfall in Wyoming? Well, it must be global warming. That's that's (laughs) my guess. Um, so, you know, uh, along with that strange weather, uh, we're also seeing a ton of uh, volcanic activity. Um, there was an article that was just put up on SOT, I think today, uh, that was talking about just the, the increase in volcanic activity. Uh, we, in the 20th century, there was a yearly average, yearly average of 35 uh, eruptions a year. And just now, as we're having this radio show, there's a total of 36 eruptions going on right now. That's, uh... But, so there's quite a there's quite an increase, um, and you know we know that there's a seismic activity that's associated with uh, volcanoes. There were a couple, um, one in Japan and one in Iceland, uh, that you know they were there's just tons of these uh, earthquake swarms uh, going on around them. The one in Japan I thought was kind of interesting too. Um, just a few days ago, there was I think it was like a five point five or somewhere around there, um, earthquake that 
that hit Japan's uh, northeast coast. Um, this is in line with uh, you know a variety of others that you know have hit um, like Cyprus, the Greek Isles, um, Venezuela. You know, there's been um, nothing huge uh, this past week or so. Uh, I think the the end of last month, there was like a 7.7 that hit New, Gu- New Guinea. Um, but what I thought was interesting about the one in Japan and along with the, the active volcano there was that five days earlier, uh, there had been, there was around 150 melon-headed whales that had beached themselves uh, along uh, Japan's Pacific coast. And... When that happened, you know, there was like all this uh, activity in, in Twitter and uh, you know, in social media about these fears of if there was going to be, you know, another big one. Uh, because in 2011, when the um, 9.0 uh, earthquake hit, that led to the tsunami and the uh, that led to the Fukushima disaster. Well, a week prior to that event, uh, there had been 50 melon-headed whales that had also beached themselves in the area. And like during that time frame, I had put up an article on on SOT and you know just looking at that that time period. And you know, there was a whole host of uh, wild uh, earth changes going on at that time. And you know what was important about that time was uh, Comet Ellen, if people remember mm-hmm. that that was uh, that was incoming uh, at that at that time. Um, yeah, wasn't the world supposed to end? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I think the the world's ended several times uh, <laughs> since then. Um, but the 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 Christchurch earthquake that happened in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, just like I think. Uh, a week or so earlier, and just prior to that, there were also um, you know, uh, two mass whale deaths in, uh, that had shown up on the coast of uh, New Zealand as well. So, you know, you, you kind of have this, um, you see these uh, mass animal deaths going on, um, you know, preceding, you know, these these earthquakes. And, you know, it's not it's not to say that, you know, every time we see this, this mass... Uh, die off, uh, whether a beaching or, or whatever, that, that that's, you know, absolutely predicting, uh, you know, a giant earthquake. But what we are seeing is, you know, there's just this accumulation of, uh, these events and it's just getting more and more intense. Um, you know, this past month, um, actually, you know, you don't have to look at the past month. Even, uh, I just did a search of, you know, the past couple of days. And, you know, we have um, whales beaching themselves in, like, Florida, India, California, New York, Australia, Washington State. There were millions of prawns that were washed ashore in Chile, uh, billions of barrel fish uh, appearing in the coastal waters off Cornwall near the U.K. And, you know, the list goes on. Uh, So, you know, something is is definitely up. Well, that's interesting that it would also be happening on the... uh East Coast as well. Um, you know, we have the New Madrid Fault, which is really kind of more what Central North America, Midwest. But if there is a correlation between uh, mass die-offs, you know, what what may be happening um, 
you know, on the East Coast as well, if the correlation is connected to earthquakes and tsunamis. Yeah, uh, what what I thought was interesting too, uh, like in relation to that, was a lot of these, a lot of these events, you know, were kind of found along the Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. So, you know, are are these animals kind of picking up, you know, all the activity that's going on there? Um, um, yeah, it, it's 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 so it's so massive, and you know, it's it's not described by or it's not ex- explained um, by you know the what we're what we're told. You know, global warming is 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 the answer for for everything, and it just doesn't. It's not. It's so inadequate. Or they just don't give an answer, like for these. Um, for the mass beachings that were happening before these earthquakes, you read the news and the, the, the scientists say that there's no, no connection whatsoever, right? It's just a coincidence. And so there was a lot of stuff going on Twitter, like you were saying, of kind of debunking the, the possible connection. But like you said, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Mm one-to-one connection or correlation. I mean, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some kind of connection because it could be that whatever caused those particular beachings, there is some common causality with the earthquake. It doesn't mean that every beaching has the same cause, but so I just, I think it's kind of silly not to look at the connection because there's so much going on and in so many other ways it's connected. So, you know, why, why not just consider the possibility and look for it? You'd think that science would be interested in you would think, and you would hope, um, but you yeah. can't forget the correlation with the sun as well, um, with the coronal holes that are constantly being uh, coming up. There's also a strong correlation between those and earthquakes as well, and, and increased volcanic activity on the Earth. Well, it's like the electric universe, you know. It's like how much is that really explored? Right. Uh, one of the um, one of the articles it was the one with uh, the uh, Japan beaching. Yeah, the one scientist that they quoted in talking about you know trying to provide an explanation. Well, you know they they got lost, <laughs> got lost, and you know they their their sonar started stopped working, and you know they ended up on the beach. Uh, Probably a Russian sub <laughs> blasted them with some EMP or something. I don't know. Turned off their sonar and. I would guess Putin did it. Yeah. I think there's some video evidence, actually, that I saw. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, got it off of YouTube. He was right there. <laughs> Russian aggression. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so let's see. So we have these uh, mass beachings, uh, for one. Um, some people say that there's outgassing uh, that, that may be happening uh, underneath the seafloor that's causing them to... Uh, or just such an extreme change in the environment that they would, um, I guess, flee the oceans. But, uh, you know, whales are pretty intelligent animals, uh, mammals, and um, I can't help but wonder what, um, you know, is the beaching this instinctual uh, kind of, you know, uh, exodus of, of, a, of a damned uh, environment? Is it... Um, you know, is it just, you know, them kind of finding themselves going as far away from uh, the parts of the sea that are um, contaminated without gassing? You know, I, I just wonder what, what might be happening on another level there. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you see 
these events and you know they they're really kind of heart-wrenching to to see you know these uh these creatures uh all on the shore and you know it's almost it's like a kind of a violent death mm-hmm. you know um so yeah what is what is going on uh with these animals and you know does it have to do with um them being you know sensitive to the electromagnetic fields that are uh, also you know tied in with you know the these earthquakes and you know volcanic activity yeah because you'd think looking at the animal world i mean animals have a strong sense of self preservation you don't ordinarily see animals giving up you know giving up their lives for some noble purpose or, or or something like that. So, so yeah, what's going on here? Was it the only, like there are a couple of ideas come to mind. One of which would be kind of the airy fairy version that there's something, um, some kind of bigger picture that's going on, like something symbolic, but, it, but the, the other direction I'd lean is in, they experienced something, encountered something that, that made them want to flee for their lives but the only place they could go was a place that they'd eventually die. So they could just their their environment that they were that they were in was un, uninhabitable for whatever reason, and they had to get out. And you know, unfortunately, leaves the beach where you know where they'll just end up dying. So I don't know some kind of vibration or noise or just something in the in the water that that would cause them to flee, basically. Mm. Too many New Agers trying to talk to whales <laughs> and dolphins. <laughs> Get me out of here. Well, it's funny because, you know, these these things are, you know, we see them, you know, with uh, aquatic animals, but you know, it's pretty crazy to see all the stuff that's happening on land too, mm-hmm. you know, the all these animal attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's uh, as running through those too. And, you know, India has just had a whole slew of, you know, animals trampling uh, people, and um, it's it's well, it's all over the world. Uh, for some reason, though, uh, there's there's been a lot in the news lately with uh with India, um, and I think it was prior to the 2011 earthquake in Japan too. Uh, you could kind of see you know these groupings um, in January. You know, there were tons and tons of uh, bird deaths. And and then in uh, fe- that February, then you you know it was more uh, aquatic animal deaths. Um, so you know what, you know I'm not sure mm-hmm. uh, what exactly is going on, but you know it's interesting to see that you know you can identify you know these patterns and they do kind of seem grouped together uh, during mm-hmm. different periods. Um, so you know that kind of does bring up to. Um, you know, have have people of the past, you know, uh, experienced this, you know, these kind of phenomenon, and um, you know, what did they think about it? And you know, when we look at uh, the you know different literature and from antiquity, uh, there were you know there were these signs, and you know, it was a it was a seen as a sign, and. You know the, these omens. Um, it was kind of classified, you know, along the lines of um, uh, it was a scholarly work. You know, it was, it was seen in similar regard as um, medicine, law, and you know, mathematics. And yeah, you know, it, it was it was held with that regard, that high regard. And you know, now 
and we we just don't. <laughs> oh, you know that that was strange, and you know it happened, and that's it. <laughs> you know, it's not related to anything. Um, but you know, it was it was uh, really regarded as you know something you know serious, and you know it should be something serious when when we're seeing uh, such massive uh, die-offs and, and just all over the planet. It's 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 pretty wild. So uh, when we do look back at some of the cases, um, you know, thousands of years ago, or uh, well, the, the, actually, the oldest one that I could find uh, was from 373 BC, and there was a great earthquake and tsunami that destroyed the Greek city of uh, Heliki, and that was actually also associated with a great comet. Um, there were. I'm going to do a couple of readings uh, from uh, from that period. Um, so bear with me if uh, if I pronounce anything incorrectly. <laughs> um, so, but the wrath of Poseidon, Poseidon uh, visited them without delay. An earthquake promptly struck their land and swallowed up, without leaving a trace for posterity to see, both the buildings and the very site on which the city stood. Warnings, usually in the same in all cases, are wont to be sent by the god before violent and far-reaching earthquakes. Either continuous storms of rain or else continuous droughts occur before earthquakes of an unusual length of time and the weather is unseasonable. Mm, have you seen any of that? <laughs> um, Check. Check. <laughs> And uh, there was also uh, another account. Um, for five days before their Hiliki disappeared, all the mice and maritons and snake and centipedes and beetles and every other creature of that kind in the city left in a body by the road that leads to Karenia. And the people of Hiliki, seeing this happen, were filled with amazement, but were unable to guess the reason. But after these creatures had departed, an earthquake occurred in the night, the city subsided, and an immense wave flooded, and Haliki disappeared. While tens, uh, while ten Spartan vessels, which happened to be at the anchor, were lost uh, together with the city. So this was a pretty massive um, tsunami and, and earthquake. I mean, it, it, you know, I think we could probably maybe even be able to compare it to, um, you know, what happened in the 2011 um, mm -hmm. earthquake and just you know completely destroyed. The city. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I have seen some accounts that uh, relate to the lost city of Atlantis. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was definitely a big event for that time. Um, and there was also a, one other event that is uh, has some parallels to you know what we're discussing today from uh, 216 BC. And this was in the uh, Punica. Uh, light was suddenly withdrawn, and Albanian uh, mariners plunged into darkness, looking in vain for the shores and land of Cyprus. And many a screech owl beset the gates of the camp. Thick swarms of bees constantly twined themselves around the terrified standards and the bright hair of more than one comet. The portent that the throne's monarchs showed its baleful glare. Wild beasts, also in the silence of night, burst through the rampant, the rampart of the camp, snatched up, snatched up a sentry 
before the eyes of his frightened comrades and scattered his limbs over the adjacent fields. Mm. Oh. Well, you know, as I, as I was hearing you read that, uh, I was just thinking about the, uh, the animals gone crazy um, thing that's been going on. But this is worldwide. Uh, and it's been going on for a while. So if there's some kind of uh, link between serious environmental changes and animal behavior, uh, what we're looking at is global. Mm-hmm. Maybe even cosmic. <laughs> well, and regarding the animals, uh, in one of the accounts that you just read, they mentioned the comet. Well, and I guess both of them are associated with comets to one degree or another. Well, First of all, in a lot of ancient accounts of like giant earthquakes, the, there's the possibility that they weren't just earthquakes. They actually were some type of cometary bombardment. Because if you think about it, you've got a, a city that's completely destroyed. Chances are there aren't any survivors. But uh, So any direct eyewitness would probably be killed in a, in a, in a bombardment like that. Um, an actual impact or overhead explosion. And so the only eyewitnesses you'd have would be the ones that would probably either see a light or hear the, or just feel or hear the, the shaking. And you go in and you see the destruction and you might conclude that it was an earthquake. So, and there are a few cases like that. I think Laura talks about them in, in the book Comets and the Horns of Moses. Um, but then on the other hand, if you look at the animal situation, with the connection with comets, like as we know, comets are not just dirty snowballs. They are uh, an electrical phenomenon that um, when, at, well, first of all, as the comet is passing through the solar system, there's all kind of all kinds of electromagnetic effects going on. That's why you have the glowing coma of the comet, and you can have discharges between bodies within the, the solar system. And with um, if you look at the kind of global or cosmic effects, you can have the entire environment of the the solar system changed, different charges, different effects, and that will have an effect on any of the planets within that field. And so it makes me wonder if these animals are responding to that changed environment um, in some way, and it's kind of like freaking them out because I mean, if to get kind of out there, if if you look at the kind of mind control technology, there's stuff that messes with your head using, or non, non-lethal weaponry, that's stuff that messes your, with your head using various frequencies or electromagnetic vibrations and can basically drive you crazy. So are these animals maybe just being just a bit more sensitive to that, or the, the effects are just more, uh, more obvious when they're being affected by something like that? Um, another option might be... Um, if you look at the some of the work of Rupert Sheldrake, he's written a, f- a couple books on on animals and their basically ESP abilities, their tele- telepathy. Like so, they um, regard disregarding any kind of electromagnetic effects. There, there's a, a kind of experiential ESP component that might be going on. Like so, they're picking up something uh, something weird and reacting to that. Well, it's interesting with uh, Sheldrake's stuff, too, is you know, his connection between animals and humans. Uh, so one experiment that he had was you know, how uh, a dog's owner you know, will recognize, will start to like go to the door and wait mm-hmm. for the owner uh, at the moment that the owner thinks about coming home. Yeah. And this is a repeated experiment. You know, it's not, it's not some, just like some theory. 
like lots of people tried this experiment out and, you know, and found uh, that this is kind of, you know, it's a repeated phenomenon. So, you know, animals, are they, are they also picking up on human activity, mm-hmm. you know, as we get more nuts? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's why I mentioned the, that animals, the effects might be more obvious in them because we don't really see it in ourselves because we pretty much normalize human behavior. And, and so as crazy as we get, we, tend to just see it as, you know, another day on the big blue marble when by any objective measure, humanity is just as crazy and there are just as many crazy things going on. I mean, in the last few years, we've seen how many of those so-called zombie attacks have we seen about people just going crazy and biting people's faces off? And then, you know, the, the explanation is always that they were high on bath salts or something, but, you know, uh, it wasn't quite. No, the salt has been around for the You know, people have been getting high on weird stuff for a you know a lot longer than these zombie attacks have been have been happening. So there's something else going on there. I'm wondering how much the uh, magnetic field has anything to do with this because the sun has finally completed its uh, polar reversal, and uh, I've seen an article where the the magnetic poles of the Earth are actually. Uh, coming together Hmm. towards the equator and of course they can't meet so it could be possible that we have a new orientation in our magnetic field and i'm wondering if that could have any effects Mm -hmm. on what we see going on in the world i think i remember seeing something not too long ago too about the shifting magnetic field on the earth and how it's uh shifting away from um the united states and uh, north america going towards russia mm-hmm. yeah yeah and didn't uh russia have like something like the most the the healthiest part of the field was over russia or yeah. something like that and the u.s had the weakest yeah well, well you mentioned um that early in the earlier in the year one of the trends was kind of bird deaths at first and then it moved to marine life well if you think about about the bird deaths it is pretty strange when just a whole flock of birds will drop dead out of the sky but something uh, or birds aren't the weirdest thing that fall out of the sky um this you know apparently if if you just look at the at the evidence the a lot more creatures can fly than you think because (laughs) because uh, just the other day um in norway there was a biology teacher karstein erstad who was skiing in the mountains and where he discovered on like on the top layer of like a meter of snow, thousands of earthworms. And so he and other scientists looked at them and said, there's no way they would have come out of the ground. The only explanation was that they'd fallen there. They'd fallen from the sky onto the snow. Some of them or many of them were still alive Hmm. when he found them. So they were just, you know, barely able to wiggle. So, he must have encountered them pretty pretty soon because uh, they they would have died in a in a short amount of time. Now, earthworms falling out of the sky, um, if that you know strikes anyone as kind of just way out there, it's it's actually pretty common. Not just earthworms, but uh, all kinds of stuff. To go to another ancient historian um, to start out with. Um, Pliny and Pliny the Elder in his natural history um, he wrote uh, this was between about 77 and 79 AD um, about a storm of frogs and fish falling from the sky 
in Wales, um, in Aberdare, in on February 11th, 1859, showers of live minnow and smooth-tailed sticklebacks fell. On May 1921, thousands of frogs fell on Gibraltar during a thunderstorm. March 4th, 1998, in Shirley Croydon, um, a large number of dead frogs. Heavy storm in Acapulco, Mexico, on October 5th, 1967, accompanied by maggots around one inch long. Dozens of fish, later identified as flounder and smelt, uh, found in the gardens and on roofs um, in, a, in the borough, borough of Newham in East London, following a thunderstorm, late May 1984, 1996, May 17th, a fall of more than 20 small fish discovered uh, witnessed in Hatfield in Hertfordshire, and a shower of apples brought rush hour traffic to a halt in Cowden, Coventry, on December 5th, 2011. That is just a small selection. Uh, there was an author in the early 1900s named Charles Fort who kind of made a career out of finding these kinds of reports. He, his collected works is something like 1,500 pages. He'd just go through um, obscure science journals and newspapers and find all these reports that were just kind of brushed off as anomalies, as things that only happened once, just things that could be explained. So so scientists would, in general, they would report on them. Um, many probably didn't get reported, but they'd report on them and then just forget about them because it was just an anomaly. Uh, so what was their, ex- did he provide like uh, any excerpts of explanations that they, did the fish get lost or? For it or? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I don't know what the no, not no. Was he fine? Did he have any oh, explanations have to, from well from those times that you know these the reporters trying to explain oh, why or how? I'd have to. It's been a while. I'd have to double check. I, I didn't look look that up. But Ford himself had a pretty good sense of humor, so he actually came up with a a worldview to explain all of this, where you know some alien species um, basically owned the earth and would basically, you know, drop funny, drop things down onto the, onto the planet every once in a while, just to get, you know, just to mess with the people living there. And so he created this whole um, like fantasy world to explain these real occurrences, but just, you know, hundreds of cases and they, and they, you know, they still happen and they, they go back hundreds of years uh, consistently. And so, you know, well, well, some of the explanations that I've heard are, you know, there might be a, uh, some kind of, um, like cyclone, um, water spouts, water spouts that basically pick up these, these creatures and then somehow, you know, carry them in the atmosphere to wherever they eventually fall down. Yeah. But how would you get earthworms, from, <laughs> you know, from that? Yeah. Know? Well, that's yeah. That's why Fort ended up just creating a, a funny story to to explain it because you know they're at, there's no good explanation for it at this point. Um, you know, they still just remain anomalies. And um, John Keel too. He you know Keel is kind of a he kind of took over from Fort as being the the go to guy for for weird stuff and humor at the same time. And well, to to go to a, a different kind of story, because um, Keel would cover all this kind of stuff, but he'd also cover UFOs. But he'd go into a lot of the the areas that so-called mainstream UFO researchers, which is pushing it quite a bit, <laughs> w- wouldn't go. So he was he'd he'd research anything if he thought it was interesting. And uh, 
one of the one of the things that he looked at was all the reports about um, apparent like UFO wreckage or just like you know, there'd be a, a sighting of a UFO and then the witness would say that it uh, you know it looked like it malfunctioned or something and a bunch of metal fell off the UFO and then they'd find all these all this metal and there are like probably dozens and dozens of cases if not hundreds uh, of this type of thing happening where you have like pretty much genuine UFO reports accompanied by physical evidence in the form of what just looks like scrap metal and just bits and pieces of, you know, looks like they're taken out of a junkyard. And so, of course, most um, either mainstream journalists or scientists or even the the kind of mainstream UFO researchers would just dis- dismiss these reports as obvious hoaxes or just there's nothing there because when you when they actually would an, would analyze the, the the metal that was found it was always just ordinary like aluminum or just something unexotic at all just you know something that you could have picked up at any kind of junkyard and so um, but what Keel did is well he you think about that some more because because the witnesses in these cases were often um, just genuine, like as good as any other witness that they would um, see something like this. So he got to thinking, um, well, so what's really going on here? So where does it, where did this metal come from? Like, how can we explain the presence of this metal with what people actually saw and, and the fact that it's, it's just ordinary metal. There's nothing strange about it. Well, his conclusion was that, that, that it was um, kind of like, uh, Charles Fort, that maybe it was deliberate that this stuff was dropped down there kind of just as a joke <laughs> or um, like he, he wrote a, a few articles with funny titles like are the UFOs using the earth as a as a you know their backyard garbage or um, as a junkyard and strangely enough there was a, a report uh, from a week or so ago out of Russia Unfortunately, there was just, I could only find a, a short article on it on Sputnik. Um, it happened in the town of, what was it, Cheat, Cheetna? Cheetah. And uh, an object apparently was seen um, crashing and then exploding in this town, and it left a, quote, pillar of smoke. This was last Thursday. And then they found where this explosion occurred, they found all these, these, all these scrap, pieces of scrap metal. And the uh, the official in charge that spoke to the news agencies about it said that the the metal quote did not resemble anything. <laughs> so that's a pre- it's a pretty vague quote, and that was the only thing there. But it would be interesting to see what kind of metal this was, if it was aluminum, <laughs> or and if it did resemble anything. Because that's the weird thing about all these cases is that this metal just looks like it. it you know, it's just a bunch of scraps that don't fit together in any kind of particular way. It's just this weird metal conglomeration yeah, of, conglom- yeah, the, bits. of bits and pieces yeah, that f- fell out of the sky. Uh, so maybe, maybe uh, you know, there isn't such a big difference between, you know, an event like that and, say, the, the falling earthworms. Mm-hmm. You know, you have uh, these windows that open up and, you know, uh, that, you know, we really don't might not know much about and uh like kind of like how uh keel uh keel's work um would you know approach <laughs> we have these uh these creatures or you know things that really aren't seemingly from uh this world mm-hmm. and 
but you know, who's to say that uh, the so we have possibly you know these creatures from another world coming into this world. Uh, maybe these earthworms are from our world, just from another part, and yeah. you know, they, something yeah. opens up. And that's another thing. Um, we talked was it last week about some parapsychology, and um, one of the weird things that I find about parapsychology is that we've got all these. All the scientists working on it, basically, they're so focused on making, like, the best lab experiment because they really want to be able to show, first of all, that it's a serious science and that they can do science. And as we talked about, that actually works because they end up developing better methodologies than mainstream scientists doing just regular um, experimentation. Um, But at the same time, the whole reason that the whole the field of parapsychology started and um, it started as a science was to explain the occurrences of PK and ESP in real life to see if these things were real to try to verify if these were real phenomena. And when you look at those cases, so the anecdotal real life cases, that's when you get into the really weird stuff that you can't duplicate in a in a lab, or at least it's very difficult because we just don't know the conditions under which these phenomena take place or the conditions that are conducive to such things. And so this is when you get into the weird seance stuff of like so-called teleportations and apportations where um, the, the medium in a seance will seemingly, um, uh, well, teleport objects or at least create them. So it's open weather whether the the object is created out of nothing. So this can be something like stones or crystals or little amulets or, you know, pieces of jewelry, beads or whatever. It can be any, any little object, but they just appear. Sometimes they appear out of the body of the, the medium, him or herself. Uh, Stephen Browdy talked about a, an interesting one book, uh, who would just produce um, what looked like flakes of of gold on her skin. It was actually tested to be a different metal. Um, but so are these things just created out of nothing or are they basically taken out of wherever they were originally and then translated somehow into, into the room where the medium is because these objects, oftentimes there'll be coins or something. So they will, they will look like they are just ordinary objects and they may well be, they may just be, taken from somewhere and put somewhere else. So is there a, a spooky um, aspect to these? Um, oh, it is pretty spooky. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's only <clears throat> spooky or supernatural until we have the um, the real kind of, uh, a real study of it and, and answers. You know, I, if, if we were... Um, in a in a culture or world that uh, respected these types of questions, we would have uh, you know some very matter of fact. Oh yes, this person's constitution enables them to uh, manifest elements from the 18th century mm-hmm. from from this place, and uh, due to a reincarnational link, you know <laughs> that that they've had, you know, uh, and but like all of these things. Um, I think that we we can uh, we can look at all of them and and some of them, as fantastic as they may seem, do have uh, rational scientific explanations. Some of them uh, aren't accounted for at all. Uh, I remember hearing a story some years ago of um, you know uh, a friend of mine had uh, gone to I guess the Swiss Alps to ski and noticed this kind of brownish uh, tinge that the snow had. 
And he asked the guy in the chairlift next to him, you know, what, what, what's the deal with all that, that brown? And the guy said, uh, oh, it's sand from the Hara. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, right. Uh, but sure enough, apparently there are these winds that are able to carry mm. sand over these incredible distances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, that's just, uh, but that's just what we know. So what don't we know? That's the question. Well, you started um, kind of getting into uh, earthquakes and and uh, discussed that article about uh, volcanoes a little bit, and um, we made mention of it, Shane, and uh, the idea that several right now that were pretty active in the world, and um, I uh, I was thinking about that a little bit and. Um, and the fact that there are these super volcanoes that exist, about uh, six of them in the world. Uh, what I didn't know was that three of them are right here in the U.S. Oh, three. I only knew of one. <laughs> I knew of uh, Yellowstone. Yeah. So apparently you have um, you have Yellowstone. You have this other one, uh, the Long Valley Caldera, uh, which is the second largest in North America. Um, and that is in East Central California. Uh, it's got a 200 square mile caldera, uh, which is huge. Two, 200 square mile, like uh, underneath, is is that how big it is? Like from uh, the like the reservoir underneath the volcano. Well, um, the way I understand it is that it it doesn't physically resemble the mouth of a volcano. It's a it's a kind of a a huge expanse that has the potential of, uh, you know, the whole thing kind of going up, if I understand it correctly. So uh, what exactly is the definition of a supervolcano that has, uh, you know, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it's, uh, it has the potential to release roughly a thousand times um, what we'd ordinarily, um, actually a better, a better way to describe it is that, uh, it has an ejecta volume of greater than 240 cubic miles. Uh, so uh, that, you know, Yellowstone Caldera and a few of these others that are around the planet have this potential. Um, and these are, these are kind of like when one of these things goes, it, it's, a, it's basically a, a civilization ender. Well, I can imagine, you know, something like that going off in, in the United States, like, you know, state, you know, that, uh, you know, a third of the country. Well, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying that, um, you know, if, for instance, Yellowstone goes um, and there has been a lot of weird activity there. I mean, apparently there are like 3000 earthquakes per day there, which are of a tiny measure. Um, but there were, there was a story some months back about how, uh, parts of the park were being closed and people were feeling, um, a greater amount, more intense earthquakes there. So, you know, if like you were pointing to the animal die-offs, um, close to the ring of fire, Mm. uh, which is around the Pacific, um, you know, if, if that's indicative of a, of a larger um, uh, event or thing that's actually all connected, 
what might that mean if it's also connected to Yellowstone? I mean, we're talking about uh, we're, we're talking about uh, plumes and ash and and stuff flying into the air a thousand miles away. In um, in looking those things up, did you see when the last time any of those went off, or wasn't that? Uh, well, they say that uh, the last major eruption at Yellowstone was 640,000 years ago. <laughs> so it's been building for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's been holding up all its uh, its anger and aggression, or hers, I should say. Yeah. So just something to consider in, in light of the fact that there's been so much other volcanic activity in, in so many other places around the world at this time. Well, it is interesting that you say, you know, that, you know, are they, could they be connected? Because, you know, when you see, when you look at the global picture and, you know, it's kind of easy to get complacent with, you know, your own particular bubble and where you're at. And, you know, but when, when you look through like the earth changes category on SOT and you see these things happening all over the planet, like, you know, it's, it's, it's activity. It's, it's, it's really getting hot. Like, you know, it's, pretty um just amazing to see um just everything going on popping you know here and there um all over the place so you got to think that you know there is some uh some kind of connection um that's that's more than uh you know just a localized event yeah and the other thing is if if you compare the power uh that these events have uh in terms of unleashing destruction or changing the environment uh it, it puts nuclear weapons to shame. I mean, I, I think I read one quote by a scientist this morning who said that, uh, you know, some of these super volcanoes have, I mean, I, I, I even, I even hesitate to say it because it sounds so out there, but like a million times the power of a, of a, you know, megaton bomb or, or something to that ilk. And, you know, that's something certainly to, to, um, to look up and verify, but, uh, even if it's only a thousand times, uh, we're talking about uh, destructive power that gets unleashed on, on uh, many millions of uh, people and covers uh, large swaths of continents. Uh, I mean, it's just that big. Uh, it changes the temperature, <coughs> blocks out blocks out the uh, the heat from the sun. Uh, you know. Half of all livestock perish. Uh, so, um, you know, volcanoes, uh, nothing to sneeze at. Even if we haven't seen a, a major one um, happening in hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, they're saying Mount St. Helens, just to use a point of reference. Uh, you know, one, one of these super volcanoes, if just one of these things goes off, it, a thousand times more powerful. Um, so... Uh, yeah, you know, we just have to hope it, it, uh, just doesn't get that bad, but that may just be wishful thinking too. Well, Shane, in those quotes that you read out earlier, you mentioned Poseidon. Mm. Yeah. Which was, sorry, I, I won't break your train of thought, no, too long, but it was, just, it was, it was kind of interesting because, uh, the uh, Greek city of uh, Haliki was devoted to, uh, Poseidon, mm. like, like, and, they just happened. They also, you know, got wiped out by this uh, uh, earthquake and um, tsunami, and the water just uh, 
gotta save them. Ouch. Well, Poseidon was a real guy, you know. <laughs> no. Well, the the Greek myths actually probably do have some basis in fact, but not the way that uh, probably most people would would think. A couple books written in the 80s, 90s uh, by Victor Klube and Bill Napier, uh, Cosmic Serpent and Cosmic Winter. Now, they are uh, astrophysicists and I um, can't remember what their other title, but they basically research or have uh, throughout their entire careers researched comets. And in these two books, they relate comets to history and basically trying to nail down something of the nature of comets when the when uh, past bombardments may have occurred, what um, disasters on Earth may have been caused, in fact, by comets, and then um, so the nature of comets and where they come from and all these sorts of things. But probably one of the most revolutionary things that they came up with in their books is that the that so many myths across the, the entire globe seem to be inspired by things that were happening in the skies and then things that happened down on the earth in, as a result of those things in the skies. So, because um, because if you look at world mythology, there are patterns um, on every continent that match up where you'll have um, like the great a great god or something and then he'll have a, a fight with his son or some kind of progeny and then that will give rise to the lineage of the gods and there will be a, a great flood and there are these um, not only elements of the the same myth but in the same sequence that recur in all world mythologies and so when you take into account Klub and Napier's work and um, others that have come after like uh, Mike Bailey in Ireland and um, all of these are pretty much collected and explained and expanded upon in uh, Laura Nightyachik's book, The Comets and the Horns of Moses. But you basically see that these stories of what the gods were actually doing are kind of uh, mythologized explanations of real events. That when, they, when people saw a god in the heavens, they were seeing a giant comet in the skies, and then there could be all, all these... Um, electromagnetic discharges and impacts and bombardments and then um, linked with volcanoes and earthquakes. And, you know, if a comet smashes into the ocean, you'll get a tsunami. And these, so these myths seem to trace back to these comets. So when you hear names like Zeus or Poseidon, these were probably the names of comets and the, that got turned into tales that that people could tell and understand and um you know eventually there's this kind of anthropomorphic element that gets added in so these gods are like you know giant superheroes that um you know that are super attractive and and get into fights with each other and and mess with humans but at the root there are actually things that were happening in the skies and comets they they could look really weird and have like remarkable shapes. So they could look like, you know, a long flowing mane of hair or they could look like animals or snakes or dragons or just uh, a whole range of different types of animals or even humanoid shapes. And so um, to, to go from there, uh, I've been reading a book lately uh, called Argonauts of the Desert um, by a Belgian researcher named Philippe Wajdenbaum and his this, this book is kind of revolutionary because he's arguing 
that the the Old Testament, the the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, was actually a, a, a Hellenistic book. So inspired by Greek writings and Greek culture. Now this is kind of way out there the first time you hear about it, especially if you if you quote know anything about biblical history or or if you or if you yourself you know are part of a religious tradition that sees a see these books in a certain history, like if you're Jewish or Christian, where um, you know a lot of people nowadays still think that Mo- Moses wrote the the first books of the Bible, but uh, he he brings a lot of evidence in to show that that's probably not the case. That there's there's no evidence for a Bible um, existing before. The, the Hellenistic age. So this is after Alexander, and you know, up to the Roman period, um, there's just there's just no evidence for it. And references from other historians and writers of the times, there's just there's no reference to um, like the Jew, uh, the Jewish religion or a, or a Torah or or anything like this. You'll find certain um, certain tidbits, like certain aspects of you know, they might be. Um, cult aspects like the worship of Yahweh. Yeah, that was around and there's evidence for that. And there's evidence for circumcision as a practice. And um, so various of these elements and there are archaeological finds that confirm certain names of rulers and certain um, like kind of old time geopolitical developments in in those times. Um, But Washington Baum takes, you know, takes all of that into account um, but what it's looking like is that the the Old Testament was actually written. Well, sorry, I use that term because I come from a Christian Christian background. But uh, it comes basically, it's a it's a Hellenistic book, and so he argues that pretty much every story in the in the Bible is inspired by a Greek writing. Now, this might be a Greek myth or the or writings from the Greek historians like Herodotus. And uh, I'll just read one example, um, pointing out one of the parallels. So this is about Isaac so, and a- Abraham. So Abraham um, was told by God to sacrifice his son. Um, so Abraham is about to sacrifice his son to Yahweh when a divine messenger stops him. Abraham sac- sacrifices a ram whose horns are embedded in a bush instead of Isaac. Now that's just a really brief rundown of the the story as it's told in Genesis. Um, in the Greek variant, Athamas, king of Boeotia, is about to sacrifice his son Phrixus to Zeus because of a false oracle. When a winged ram sent by Zeus takes Phrixus on his back and brings him safely to Colchis, modern-day Georgia, there to thank Zeus for saving his life, Phrixus sacrifices the ram and hangs its golden fleece on an oak. So, Wajdenbaum writes, we can distinguish several myth themes, so those are small units that are in a myth in this narrative. A father is about to sacrifice his son to a supreme god, a divine messenger intervenes, the son is saved, and a ram is sacrificed in his stead. Of course, there are details and he gets into, or differences, and he gets into those too. But that's just one example, and he goes through all the books from Genesis to to Kings, showing these references. And um, you know, I won't go into the details; we can save that for another show if anyone's interested. <laughs> but um, I just, first of all, I found it interesting because it's a it's a totally new um, new perspective um, in biblical studies, 
that said, it's not a new perspective at all because the early Christian writers from like the first few hundred years uh, of Christianity had to defend the Bible against charges that it was based on Greek writings, that it was based on, based on Plato and that Plato came before Moses. And so they responded to these criticisms by saying, well, obviously the Bible is older than the Greek myths because Moses lived thousands of years before Plato did. And it's like, you know, QED, end of argument. I mean, read the book. Moses is really old, so therefore the Bible must have been written thousands of years ago, right? Well, no. And so so the ideas, the seeds of the ideas have been there since since the Hellenistic era and since the you know, the time of the, the Roman Empire. But it's only been in the last 10 or 15 years that these ideas have been getting any traction and actually starting to be looked at in detail by um, by scholars of of Christianity and Judaism and the Bible in general. So uh, that's just one aspect uh, that really struck me. But the other is that when you look at now, when you look at the the Bible stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, Samson, and all these all these guys, Solomon, David, aspects that went into the creation of those stories are actually aspects from Greek Greek myths which are um, descriptions of celestial events. So really, you know, when you're talking about Solomon or David, you're probably talking about a comet somewhere in there in one way or another. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that these, um, you know, these gods and, you know, which were comets and, you know, signs from from uh, the cosmos or the sky and that they're also associated with uh, signs on, on Earth and, you know, kind of like what we're seeing today, um, you know, there, there are all these uh, animal portents and um, these uh, what would be considered, you know, divine, uh, divine or divination from, you know, uh, abstracting meaning from, you know, say uh, uh, some event, you know, like a, a mass death of, you know, animals, and you know, they so they saw, uh, they made those connections during those times. Um, even though that the meaning, you know, may have been kind of watered down mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, interpreted in different ways, uh, in, you know, mainstream today. But, you know, if we kind of look at it through the lens of, uh, what you, Har- you just described Harrison, um, you know, we kind of get a, a more, um, all meaningful picture, uh, from, from what's going on in the world. And even just the way that the events themselves are interpreted, there's something in Washington idea that kind of there's a parallel there, and that we in the in the ancient times we had people looking at this very seriously and trying to figure out what's going on, and then slowly over time that just got relegated to you know old time superstition, and nowadays um, people just don't take it seriously at all. And at the same time, you've got these, you know, stories in the Bible based on Greek myths that become stories about ancient kings and and leaders that, and you know, ancient things that didn't actually happen. And so the the true picture gets lost in the noise as these stories and traditions develop through time to the point where we end up, first of all, believing believing in things that aren't true and that didn't happen. And second, just losing perspective on um, the significance and meaning of events that nowadays are a regular part of everyday reality. 
which you know could be just um, you know uh, one aspect of that is just seeing it. You know, um, you know I, I think uh, you know when you look in you know mainstream media and you know it's it's hardly given you know the attention it deserves. You know these are these are massive things and uh, they're important for you know to to recognize and try to understand for the you mm-hmm. know the, the world that we live in and. Uh, to you know, just to deny that it's um, you know, it just seems uh, so wrong um, yeah. that that we're missing like the, these you know messages that that um, that are important to to see. Yeah, I mean it. It, it reminds me of um, Hollywood's treatment of these uh, subjects as well. Uh, usually, there's um, uh, like with this film Armageddon, you know. Uh, you have the this comet or something, a meteor that's going to uh, impact Earth, and um, and so you know uh, there's always some kind of um, you know uh, hyper patriarchal masculine approach to um, offsetting the damage, um, and 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 that is Western culture's approach to these subjects. The boom boom, <laughs> yes. That's a whole fantasy world too, you know. It's it, this is only happens in fantasy, folks. You know, it, this isn't this isn't real at all. And you know, um, uh, just you know, make sure you consume you know forty hours a week of you know your your news and dissociate in that, and you know you'll be fine. And you know, this this isn't part of reality. Yeah. And uh, and if heaven forbid one of one of these threats should uh, should uh, should come to earth we uh we have some heroes here who can uh, hop on it and blow it up yeah that's, be saved that's the exp- that's the exp- yeah that's the um what's the word well it's typically american right so there's a an asteroid coming that's going to destroy earth what are we going to do we're going to bring democracy and freedom to it <laughs> because you know all, all that all those dust particles and rocks in that comet don't have the freedom and democracy that we do those terrorist meters yeah and so we're gonna we're gonna get up there and we're gonna bomb the hell out of it <laughs> to bring it the freedom and democracy that it deserves it's it's it, you know the comets have a right to freedom and democracy asteroids have a right to freedom and democracy and who are we to deny that to them well it, it's it's it is a very western perspective and you know to see the roots of where that perspective comes from, you know, it's also very uh, Judeo-Christian. You know, you have your Savior who's gonna, you know, put things right, and you know, just rely on them and and sit back and watch, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was <clears throat> that was uh, really interesting, Harrison, and uh, I'm I'm sure we'll be uh, getting into those topics again in the future. Uh, because they kind of um, point to so many things or, or ways of seeing and not seeing about what's happening today uh, that we take for granted. Um, so moving along, uh, we recently had um, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, give his 13th annual uh, question and answer uh, session before uh, the Russian public uh, live on television, and um, I'd call it a marathon. Yes, and and why was it called a marathon? Because the guy goes on for for four to five hours at a time, uh, fielding all sorts of different questions, um, 
from the political to uh, to relationship. I mean, <laughs> relationship advice. <Yeah. laughs> relationship advice. I think there were around like three million uh, questions that came in. Yeah, yeah. They had to to sift through and and field a whole bunch of questions um, before they were given to Putin. And uh, and really, uh, you know, if if you if you watch him or or any part of his uh, four hour Q and A uh, session, uh, you're you're actually quite in danger, I think. And and the danger there is in is in becoming deprogrammed from thinking that the guy doesn't give a crap about his his people, because uh, he manages to address these questions in some detail, um, which suggests a lot of preparation and homework. Um, but just general knowledge, uh, not to say that he, you know, all the questions are, are given to him beforehand the way they might be in a, in one of these U S town hall meetings that you'd expect from a guy like Obama or Clinton. It's, I mean, it's four hours long, you know, and the guy's constantly, um, you know, serving his country and, you know, he's, he, you can tell he's a busy man and, you know how how much preparation? You know, uh, I believe there is a the CNN article uh, that is a Matthew Chance, right? Uh, who who uh, you know he, he it was really laughable uh, the the comments that he was making. I don't I don't have the article in front of me. But. Well, I have it here. Um, basically, this guy uh, Matthew Chance of CNN um, writes this little piece the day before the Q and a, and, um, uh, he's, uh, you know, the, the, the language that he uses to, to describe, um, the, the whole, uh, meeting itself and, and, uh, and what Putin is actually doing according to him or I'm pretty telling, but, but also standard fare and, you know, Western propaganda. On on one level, you know, when you read through stuff like that, you know, it kind of boils your blood. But then, then you, you you just have to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous. It's a, it's it's like just beyond the pale absurd. Uh, it is absurd and predictable. Um, so, like, you know, he he begins his uh, his little bit um, by saying that uh, you know in Russia. Um, you know, you have to be very afraid of, uh, you know, politi- political opposition in Russia could do damage to your health. Which was a reference? Which was a reference to Boris Nemtsov, uh, the political opponent who was uh, murdered a few months ago in Russia. And um, and the rest of the article just kind of departs from there. There's no, uh, there's no possibility in, in this writer's mind that uh, Putin might actually give a hoot uh, for his people. Uh, Everything has to be um, uh, kind of defined by this perception of him as a, as a baddie. Yeah. He's a nefarious character. Yes. Yeah. It it really is. It really is ridiculous. And um, you know, when, when you listen to Putin and, you know, his, the, the question answers and, you know, he's going on and on, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's really incredible that he does have, you know, such knowledge of, you know, all these different aspects, 
you know, there's no teleprompter. There's, you know, he's not reading from a script. He's, you know, he has these, like you were saying, like, you know, this, this thorough knowledge. Uh, and, you know, you, you can, you, the genuine concern that he has, you know, really comes across. And like you were saying with, uh, you know, you're in danger of being uh, deprogrammed because it's, it's, when you watch that, it's such, uh, an opposite, um, depiction of, you know, how, how things in, you know, American media are, are portrayed. You know, it's, 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 uh, you, you can't help but, you know, just be inspired by the guy. He, um, he had a few, uh, choice, um, lines during this, uh, particular session as well. Um, I mean, if you, if you've heard him speak before or if, uh, read anything that, uh, he's said before in other meetings, it may not come as a surprise, but, he basically he was saying all of this before his entire before the world and anyone who's listening because this is probably one of the most televised um, and uh, and and well received speeches that he's going to give. Uh, but here are a couple of things that he said. He says, um, "Big superpowers, which pretend to be exceptional and consider themselves the only center of power in the world, do not need allies. They need vassals." I'm talking about the United States. Russia cannot exist in such a system of relations. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> what an amazing counter to um, all the rhetoric and bluster we're hearing in Washington right now. Yeah, that was one of my favorite quotes uh, that I'd come across uh, from from his question and answer thing. And, um, you know, it, it really does point out uh, the relationship that you, the United States has uh, with with all you know every every country, you know they don't look at it as uh, they don't look at others as partners. You know it's it's just vassals, and you know what can you do for me and me being you know their financial war machine. Right, and you know another question uh, because everybody's always saying how you know Putin is just trying to reinstate the, the Soviet Union, how he's trying to rebuild the empire. Uh, to that, he said outright, he said, we do not intend to build, rebuild an empire, despite what they are accusing us of. We have no imperial ambition. But providing a decent living to people, including Russians living abroad in countries close to us, that we can do by developing cooperation with them. So if you really look at, at the types of things that he's doing, uh, actually doing uh, you know, building economic alliances with China, Brazil, South Africa, uh, India, um, you know, creating the infrastructure for uh, new ways of trade. Um, I mean, this is, is that empire building? Uh, I don't think so. Well, it's funny that he that Putin's accused of wanting to rebuild the USSR, and he kind of had a, an interesting spin on that. Another quote from from the marathon. He said that after World War II, we tried to impose on many Eastern European nations our model of development, and we did it through force. We must acknowledge that. There's nothing good in it. It still affects us today. The Americans are doing something like that now, trying to impose their model on virtually the entire world. They will fail, too. Now, so, I, I mean, it's so true, because the USSR was seen as the evil empire in the Cold War, and the U.S. 
was uh, painted with these rose-colored glasses as being, you know, the bastion of freedom and democracy and the only good place in the world. Well, now, these past few years, and even before that, it's become very clear that the U.S. is the center of the, you know, the evil empire, and that it is doing things just as bad and seeing the world the way they portrayed the USSR is doing. And so Putin's completely correct in turning the turning the tables on that accusation and pointing out that it's the U.S. that wants to rebuild the the USSR. And they want, you know, the USSA is what's you know what the the hawks in Washington want. It's amazing to see how many parallels you know work with, with that uh, analogy. You know, the it's you know you have the expansionism and the the blatant propaganda. Um, and you know, it, what's, what's funny is, or not funny, but sad is that, you know, in the USSR, people recognize their government's propaganda in America today, you know, what, nothing, you know, it, it's, it's, it's seen as, you know, the absolute truth Yeah. and there's no debate. There's no, you know, discussion on it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it is what it is. And, you know, if you, if you disagree, you know, you're some wild conspiracy theorist or, you know, some nutter. That's insane. Well, uh, I think it's an incredible admission on his part uh, to point back to uh, the USSR's uh, history in the last, you know, five, six decades and, uh, and point out its own faults. I mean, if, if you can't do that, then you don't know, if you can't point to what's wrong, then you, you have very little criteria to to work on making things correct or uh, or optimal or constructive. So um, you know it's it's really kind of disarming in a couple of ways that last statement. Um, and I mean, it probably by now it's you know it's no illusion that uh, uh, the USSR fell behind uh, in many ways. Um, working within such an entropic uh, you know, structure of government and, and uh, society. But, um, you know, there he is. He's coming out and saying it. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Well, I also liked his answer when he was asked about Nemtsov. Because uh, you mentioned in the CNN article by the Chance guy that he'd kind of alluded to that, to the Nemtsov murder. And so when he was asked a question about Nemtsov, um, Putin responded, uh, well, he was asked about, because um, just as the, the session was going along, there was breaking news that uh, a, p- a prominent journalist in Ukraine was killed, Olez Buzina, um, and he was in the opposition in the current government in Ukraine. So Putin was asked about this, and he said, in Ukraine, which aspires to be a democratic country, get that, aspires, mm-hmm. uh, and seeks membership in a democratic Europe, um, no thorough investigations of these crimes happen. Where are the killers of these people? Uh, there appear to be none, no killers, no people who hired them. And in North uh, North America and Europe, they prefer not to notice that. Now, in case anyone doesn't know, there has been a string of political murders in Ukraine and in Kiev. It seems like every couple of days there's a new like opposition member or 
um, journalist who said something, you know, in support of um, any kind of policy that goes against Kiev. So it might be about Crimea or Donetsk and Lugansk. And they just turn up shot or hanged or whatever. And, you know, it's either no explanation or they committed suicide. When you look at the list and just person after person, I mean, the look at what happened in Russia where Nemtsov was killed and there is just a media circus about it that, you know, here's Putin personally killing off members of the opposition when, you know, that itself was just total PR, total spin in the media because there's no evidence of that. And Russia actually, you know, launches an official investigation and supports Nemtsov afterwards and gives him public support and mourns along with, you know, the people that liked him officially. And what happens in Kiev? Nothing. And if you read like tweets and Facebook pages from the other Ukrainian politicians, they actually... Um, you know, either make fun of the person that was killed or say it was a good thing. And, you know, um, the, the response is just animalistic. And yet these are the guys that, that, you know, we Western nations support and, you know, we get, we have the, you know, hissy fits whenever, whenever anything happens in Russia that pales in comparison to the things that are going on in Ukraine. And just the hypocrisy is astounding. Uh, maybe we can move on to another Ukraine-related story, kind of. Because um, I'm Canadian, and recently, last weekend, I believe it was supposed to be, there was a, a Ukrainian um, classical pianist who was scheduled to play with the Toronto Symphonic Orchestra, Symphony Orchestra. And so she was going to play. It had been planned for months and then um, it was canceled. Now the the TSO just released a statement saying that it you know that um, the pianist Valentina Lizitsa would not be playing, and that they would you know be replaced, changing the schedule and changing the program, and someone else would be playing. Now the it turns out that the reason for this was that uh, Valentina is an outspoken critic of what's going on in Kiev, She in Ukraine. She can be rightly called anti-Kiev. She's got a Twitter page where she posts, you know, tweets daily just pointing out either media lies or, you know, what's really going on. She talks about the political situation and pretty much just all the stuff that we cover on SOT um, on Twitter. And, you know, being being Twitter, she can, you know, she'd write things that were either you know, sarcastic or jokes or, you know, and things that would understandably be offensive to some people because whenever you speak the truth about something, it's going to be offensive. And sometimes, you know, with when the emotions get going, you put it in such a way that some, you know, you want to, you want to raise people's uh, hackles a bit when you, when you do it. And so she came out and said, um, and she kind of went public with the story because the TSO wasn't saying anything. So she told what had actually happened. Now, it turns out that um, several months ago in December, <clears throat> the TSO had received all kinds of complaints from the Ukrainian community in Canada, in Toronto, about Valentina, saying that she was inciting hatred and spreading hate speech and, uh, you know, 
assorted things of that nature on her Twitter page. So the, so they decided to cancel her show in response to that and um, with pay. So they were going to pay her, her, the fee that, the, that she would have received if she had played, but they decided to take that political decision not to let her play. Now, um, first of all, just a little bit of more background about Valentina. Her Facebook page, she her her handle on there is um, don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Niedo Ukrainka, which basically translates as sub-Ukrainian. Now, this was in reference to Yatsenyuk's uh, you know infamous blunder or not blunder when on the official Ukrainian government um, page translated in, in English, he he referred to the residents of Eastern Ukraine as subhumans. I believe our, our favorite uh, State Department uh, official also had a comment on that because uh, somebody yeah. brought that up. Yeah, she she wouldn't deny that he said it, but she but she uh, it was Saki, and she was basically just she was trying to get around the issue without either confirming or denying it, just saying, "Oh, well, at the same time that that incident happened, he was actually doing a lot of good, and he was actually trying to stop, um, you know, stop these protests and these violent protests." So. Um, essentially what she was saying is that it was perfectly all right that he called these people subhumans because he was doing something else at the same time. But anyways, so that's the name of her page because um, I'm assuming, you know, being a Russian speaker, probably a, a resident of, or coming from that region, of course, you know, she would. Was she from Kiev? Um, I don't know what what city she was from. She She is Ukrainian. I'm assuming that she was from um, from southeastern Ukraine somewhere, um, but I'd, I'd have to look into that. I haven't. I didn't. I wasn't able to find that. But um, and so in response to like her tweets and stuff, she's been called um, all kinds of names. Um, you know, like being a paid Kremlin expletive. You know, insert your word of choice there. Um, subhuman. Yeah, subhuman. She's uh, well. I'll get into this, but people, you know, they're. There are people calling her a Nazi and fascist, and but I'll get into that because that's really ironic the way that kind of came about. There are things on her on her page, uh, people posting on Twitter saying that she's calling on all her fans to uh, that she's basically inciting violence and and calling on all her fans to to um, to commit violent acts against like um, who knows in specific, but you know the suggestion is against either the TSO or. Um, you know, the people protesting against her or whatever, a bunch of nonsense. Now I want to read a few of her tweets just to give an idea of what, um, what she's actually saying and then how it's been interpreted. Um, but, uh, first of all, after she went public with it, then, um, the TSO, uh, CEO, um, pompous ass Jeff Melanson, he he quote broke his silence to quote set the record set, set the story straight. So here are some things he said. Uh, we did not go public with this story because we're trying to protect Valentina and her reputation. We are now going public because she basically forced the issue on us, and now we are speaking to you. This was an interview that he gave to a Canadian paper. Torontonians approach us uh, approach us with great concern. Over the course of the last four months, the concern over these deeply offensive and intolerant tweets has built to a chorus of a very large group of Torontonians, of not just Ukrainians. We are in the world's most ethnically diverse city, a tolerant city. Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay. Um, so 
some of the most, see, he described her tweets as some of the most egregious things one could possibly read or write. Intolerant and offensive expression. Now, this last bit, intolerant and offensive expression, he was answering a question about whether this was an issue of free speech. He said, well, this has nothing to do with, with tolerance or free speech. This is about um, uh, stopping her from her intolerant expression of free speech. So, I mean, uh, this... Uh, it's all uh, kinds of ways wrong. <laughs> it's like, okay, so, you know, I agree. Uh, you know, I can, uh, I can see that, you know, people have their talents, you know, some people are good musicians. Some people are good mathematicians. So this guy, Melanson, he's probably got some kind of skill to allow him to be, you know, the CEO of uh, Toronto's orchestra. But he obviously is pretty stupid in a whole bunch of other ways. Because, I mean, the Telegraph the UK paper had a really good response to this. Um, and just pointing out the obvious, I mean, Jeff... Tolerance and free speech includes stuff that people might find offensive. I mean, this was the whole thing that Charlie Hebdo was about. Mm -hmm. Expression, freedom of expression to, to say, write, or draw things that other people might find offensive. Now, um, so he, he went on to deny that it was an issue of uh, a donor issue because there were rumors going around that he blamed Valentina on that 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 um, it was an issue that one of the donors was planning on pulling out their support for the TSO because of this, if they would have let her play. So he denied that. He, you know, he claimed it was a fabrication on Lizitz's part. Now, um, in this article, the Canadian one, the, it wrote that Ms. Lizitza showed the Globe and Mail an email from her agent, Tanya Dorn, at IMG Artists, dated February 27th, in which Ms. Dorn said she had spoken with Louis Fallis, TSO Vice President of Artistic Planning, who told her, qu quote, a Ukrainian donor wants to pull his sponsorship. So Melanson, um, just in a, in a slimeball, you know, attack on Valentina herself, blamed her for making this up when the Globe and Mail had at least, you know, pointed out that if anything, it was from this this email, whether it was true or not, from the from the TSO vice president that was sent to her agent. So, I mean, just a slimeball way of going about it. And then he released, he made public with this article a seven-page document containing the tweets, um, the you know the incriminating tweets that they had sent to her for explanation. And you know, once she once she said, "Yeah, I, I wrote every word and I stick by it," that's when they they told her that they were canceling the show. Now, so for just some of the tweets that she was saying, um, I'm just going to open up a document here so I can read some. Because, I mean, some of them are just funny. That And remember what Melanson said, you know, these were some of the most egregious and terrible things that anyone could read or, read or write. Um, okay, let me find this. Okay, so the first tweet on this, one of the first tweets on this, in this document of hers, no, the first one, says, Ukrainian elite was always fond of certain German technology, or te terminology. Untermensch is what Yatsunuk had in mind, no doubt. Oh, how could she say such a thing? That is just so offensive to Yatsunyuk. And historically <laughs> accurate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so she writes, Never was a nation made to turn back the clock progress and willingly return to rural obscurity. Okay, so you don't like it, whatever. 
That's the truth. Um, Dr. EU attempted to separate conjoined twins Russia-Ukraine with a meat cleaver and no anesthesia. It's vivid, but true. Um, Okay. So she's writing this. If if This is the hashtag, if Scotland were Ukraine. They would now be burning tires and chanting, glory to Scotland, glory to the nation, death to enemy, Brits. (laughs) One is civilized way, another is uncivil. I mean, that is just so offensive to Scottish people to be compared to Ukrainians. I mean, how could she do that? Well, she she has a, a satirical flair, that's for yeah. sure. But uh, everything she's saying uh, and that I've read just sounds like it's it's based on objective fact. Mm-hmm. This is probably what happened. Um, no doubt, you know, if if this Ukrainian donor to the uh, to the Toronto Symphony uh, exists, um, yeah. You know, I can imagine if he has these uh, nationalistic, uh, you know, narrow uh, links and allegiance to, to Kiev's, uh, you know, new regime. Uh, yeah, you know, he might have wanted to pull his money out. Um, but where's the backbone? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe that's not even a question in the context of, of, uh, of you know, these CEOs of, of orchestras. Who um, who get supported by you know donor money, like uh, you know the, you have uh, the New York um, you know the Metropolitan Opera and, and Symphony and and they're supported by the the uh, Co- um, Koch brothers, Coke yeah. Coke, uh, you know so there's a there's a party line and probably somewhere a government agency someplace uh, sent a sent a letter. Uh, and, and is trying to enforce some kind of political uh, agenda as well. Um, and and artists of this kind can't, you know, their their points of view just can't be tolerated. Mm-hmm. She okay. So the thing about the fascism thing. Now she makes makes a lot of tweets about the obviously, you know, fascistic Nazi inspired um, stuff going on in Ukraine, like with Azov Battalion and and right sector. Now, but the the funny thing is, is that it, the, a lot of the people writing articles like criticizing her somehow get it twisted in their minds to the to to think that she is the one espousing the the Nazi <laughs> mentality when she's pointing out that it is actually these groups of Ukrainians doing it. So I don't know what's if I mean it's it's either that they're really stupid and they just don't know what's going on, and so they because they have the the preconceived notion in their head that she is this evil person that they then read that as her being a Nazi or it's just deliberate um, and just out of malice because uh, well, it's like, here's one, like she tweeted, uh, there's one swear in here, which I'll, I'll bleep out of myself. So uh, torn limbs, headless bodies on the streets. This is 21st century Ukraine. Die Nazi bleep. So this is um, this is the response written by uh, a journalist for uh, the Examiner in the states. So he says, blaming Ukraine, a victim of Russian aggression, for the casualties caused by Putin's invading pawns is extremely offensive. Echoing disturbing commentary that wants an entire country to die is also offensive. Is also very disturbing. In other tweets, Lizitsa supports Russia's pet project Nova Russia. Blah blah blah. So again, just 
so many things wrong in one sentence or two sentences. So, okay, so first of all, she's commenting on the headless dead bodies in the streets caused by, you know, death squads and Ukrainian National Guard and um, regular army forces. And she's saying this is Ukraine, this is uh, 21st century Ukraine. Now, so this guy says, well, I mean, how can you possibly be criticizing Ukraine for what Putin's, uh, you know, pawns in East Ukraine are doing? I mean... Who can write such a thing? It's it's willful <laughs> ignorance. Well, it's baffling. I mean, you know, it kind of makes you think of, um, you know, is the Israeli position on Gaza. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know that that you know they're they must be just using uh, you know children as as shields, and you know it's the Palestinians' fault that they're dead. You mm-hmm. know, and the part where she writes "die Nazi biatch." Um, he, you know, this guy responds that it's very disturbing that she wants an entire country to die. Well, she never said that. I mean, and that's a very striking admission on this guy's part that he, that that reference automatically thinks, makes him think of the whole of Ukraine as being a Nazi. I mean, that says something about, you know, what's going on beneath the surface. Uh, just another, another, a couple more just because make me so angry. So she tweeted, this is better. Dear informed Ukrainians, I will never get tired of reminding you that you are dog poop. Thank you for your attention. End of tweet. Now, okay, notice who she addressed this tweet to, informed Ukrainians. Now, this is a common term used for, you know, Ukrainians who think they're politically informed and, you know, the ones that, you know, jumped on Maidan. So a very specific group of people who think they're smart but are actually, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, dog poop because for various reasons they have no idea what's going on they support uh you know nazi death squads they have you know they villain vilify demonize and support the essential genocide of people living in these other country i mean just um i'd say horrible people in general so that's what she said response uh denigrating people of any nation with this type of hate speech is extremely offensive When viewed in combination with Lizitz's other social media postings, this tweet paints a clear picture of her extreme hatred towards Ukrainians. Okay, first of all, she's a Ukrainian herself, um, born in Kiev, apparently. Found that out on the chat room. And so, you know, I guess she's just a self-hating Ukrainian. I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The you know the parallels just keep going. Okay, I think I'll I'll stop there. But it was it's just, I mean I I wrote a message of support for Valentina on the the TSO's Facebook page where they announced the the cancellation or rather announced the the new program that they are going to be um, putting on, and I got one troll that kind of attacked attached to to my posts, and you know we had a little bit of back and forth over the next few days. Um, luckily she wasn't too, um, um, what's the word like over and over energetic. So I was able to not devote too much time to it, but, um, she, you know, cause I, I basically just said shame on the TSO for, for doing this. I mean, it's totally irresponsible and, um, you know, coming in a nation like Canada that, that prides itself on its tolerance and, um, it, you know, it was just stupid. So I wrote that. And this one, you know, this one woman replied, calling me a Kremlin troll. <laughs> and uh, um, 
she ended by by posting a video and saying um, a, a video called in Russian um, KGB collaboration with the SS. And so the clip is like, you know, some KGB guy shaking hands with one of the SS officers. Now, I, I had to think about this for a second. Okay, so what's she trying to say? Okay, so so Russia is bad because the because so, some people in the KGB, you know, 60, 70 years ago, more than 70 years ago, um, you know, I don't even know the truth, truth or not. It doesn't matter about the, the little documentary, you know, had some form of collaboration with the SS. So I just responded, well, okay, you know, did, did the Ukrainians invent a time machine or something? Because I don't see how this, re- this is relevant to what's going on now. And I posted a picture of the Azov battalion, you know, all of them sitting on the street with their tank, with their EU flag, their Ukrainian uh, Azov battalion flag, and the Nazi swastika flag, you know, giving the Nazi salute. She didn't respond to that one. But how could she? Yeah. I mean, so she's criticizing Russia for, you know, what the USSR may or may not have done and missing the point that the very, the very hinge of her argument is the the thing that Lizitsa herself is using to criticize the current Ukrainian government that no, not only it's not that, you know, that the Ukrainians 70 years ago might have, um, you know, conspired and collaborated with the Nazis did. It's that they are existing right now and these guys are Nazis right now and they're openly Nazi. And so Well this is where yeah. the Western media has been so successful. Mm-hmm. I mean if if you do hear about it uh anywhere um in a in a Western newspaper or, or media outlet, it's a complete anomaly. Uh, there, there has been no, uh, information, no connection, uh, made between, um, Kiev's associations with Azov Battalion and Right Sector and Svoboda, uh, and, and what they're doing and who they are with, uh, the U.S. government's tacit approval of them. It's just, it, it's not in the calculus. It's not even, uh, it's not even a blip in the vast scheme of things. Um, and, and that's, you know, uh, you media whores out there, you know, you, so far you've managed to keep it under wraps, uh, and, uh, and to the detriment of, of, of everybody. Uh, so, um, who knows how much more of this will, will come out and how, but, um, it is coming out just a little bit at a time, um, in places here and there. And, uh, you know, this, this link has to be, uh, communicated. Mm-hmm. One more. I gotta get one more. All right. <laughs> get it off your chest. Okay. She writes, this is another of Valentina's tweets. I think the whole former Ukraine is a site of giant CIA experiment in mind altering drugs. Okay. It's obviously, you know, a half serious joke. You know, I mean, I've made similar jokes in the past, probably worse. So the way that this guy describes it, so she so she writes this and uses disturbing imagery of Maidan revolutioners pictured as patients in psychiatric asylums. This offensive commentary exhibits many trademarks of Nazi ideology. <laughs> Great disrespect for another's culture, intelligence, and respectability, expansionism, and references to alleged mental illness. 
highly inflammatory allegations reminiscent of Hitler's propensity to exterminate people that were deemed not normal. This is really baffling. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's like these reporters are, you know, just in this completely different reality. And yeah, it's it's yeah, it is it's just baffling like you know, how how they can say the things that they're saying. And all from that short tweet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, he essentially wrote all of that for her essentially saying these people are all crazy. How many times have have you personally, listener, you know, dear listener, said something like that in your life? Man, these people are all crazy. I, I say that pretty much every day. And, you know, but I guess that just says something about me and my, um, you know, ideological tendencies, I suppose. I mean, I never knew. You know, thanks for letting me know. I've gained an insight into myself after this. Okay, enough of that. Anything else, guys? Well, I got a couple more things that I can bring up if we have more time. Okay, so first, um, Ilan, when you were talking about um, Putin's marathon thing, and you were just you were just making a few comments on, um, you know, Russia as an empire and the things that Putin and Russia are actually doing, you know, establishing relationships and stuff with with other countries, BRICS, um, you know, countries in Asia, China, etc. Well, in just just in recent times, you know, the past month or so, maybe even less than that, past couple of weeks, um, Russia kind of did three, made three big moves on the world stage. First of all, there was uh, a meeting in Moscow with Damascus, Syria, and the so-called non-terrorist anti-government opposition. So this is the opposition in Syria the non-terrorist opposition, so basically not ISIS, not U.S. proxy trolls. And they actually came to an agreement on five conflict resolution principles. This is for the first time in four years. So once again, Russia has been playing the role of peacekeeper in the world and actually getting people to talk to each other and come to diplomatic solutions to their problems, as opposed to sending a bunch of head-chopping, crazy lunatics into a country to kill a whole bunch of people and um, take down the legitimate ruler of that state. I am referencing Syria right now. So just looking at the, just that itself, here is Russia brokering a talk between the most, the second most evil person on the planet, Bashar al-Assad, and the opposition of his government with whom there have been conflicts, you know, for the past several years, and getting them to come to an agreement on something, as opposed to just bombing the hell out of both of them. What a concept. So the latter doesn't bring peace? Is that what you're saying? Um, cognitive dissonance, <laughs> I just can't even go there right now. Second, in Yemen, um, of course, the airlifting of the Americans out of, mm-hmm. <laughs> out of Yemen. Not all the Americans, but uh, so Russia sent in planes to take out their own citizens, but they said pretty much, okay, well, we'll take whoever needs to leave. Yeah, I think China helped that too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and this, and of course, the U.S. response was, oh, it's just too dangerous, you know, just, you know, you're on your own, guys. Sorry, I mean, you know, I know that we, or we know that we are providing all the coordinates to Saudi Arabia to bomb the hell out of the place that you're in. 
you know, we really can't be bothered to send another plane in. Um, you know, we're really focusing on the jets right now and the bombs and the destruction and the killing. So, you know, if we accidentally kill you or if or if you accidentally get killed, it's just sorry. But, I mean, we've been telling you that Yemen is a crappy country for years. So, pff, you're on your own. And next time, choose an assignment in a, in a place like, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> somewhere more peaceful. It's your fault, in other words. Yeah. So they, they they essentially blamed Americans in Yemen for being there in the first place while they're bombing the hell out of it. So, you know, good job, America. Better job, Russia. Third, Russia is establishing a, um, a strategic partnership with, with Iran. And they have um, decided to supply Iran with S-300 missile systems, which um, were previously, uh, previously Russia had um, put like a self-imposed ban on providing these weapon systems to Iran. But now they have lifted that self-imposed ban and will be providing them. Now, (laughs) this made um, Bibi Netanyahu kind of angry. So Netanyahu, you know, I can just picture it. He hears the news and then, you know, his face starts going red and you see little wisps of smoke coming out of his ears. He's like, oh, my God. Um, So we called Putin because he was just so upset that Putin could do such a thing um, to Bibi because, you know, I mean, they're supposed to be friends. They go way back. How could Putin do this? How could he betray him in this way by giving Iran these weapons? So apparently Putin had to explain to Netanyahu, the difference between the words offensive and defensive, because these weapons, you know, are defensive weapons designed to to uh, to be used in case of an attack on Iran. And so he's basically saying, okay, BB, calm down. You know, the only time they'll have to use them is if you decide to go in there and start something. So, so you know, so and he didn't like that. Yeah. So of course, BB didn't like that. And, you know, he had to go and, um, he had to find his pacifier, you know, sit down with his teddy bear for a while and just, you know, reestablish, you know, emotional equal equilibrium because, um, because of his grave concerns over that decision. So that happened. Um, and on that, I think uh, he got pissed off at Obama as well, since uh, Obama said, "Well, I'm surprised Russia took so long to, to, because uh, they were never part of the uh, any of the restrictions to Iran. It was just voluntarily done by Russia. Mm-hmm. So uh, Israel's not too happy about that either. Nope. Well, on that subject, uh, it looks like you know this whole charade of um, brokering some kind of nuclear deal with Iran is uh, is just that. It's a charade. I mean, um, there was some uh, analysis of it the other day, um, I think by Stephen Ledman. And uh, basically the White House has been giving Congress um, the okay ultimately to dictate the, the whole terms of the uh, the agreement. And since the White House knows that Congress um, is basically kind of on the uh, payroll and, and influenced by APAC um, or Israel, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be passed. So the conclusion is that 
uh, all of this talk, um, all of these gestures of, of, you know, establishing a new relationship between Iran and, and uh, the U.S., uh, it's all a case of good cop, bad cop mm-hmm. and uh, manipulation. Um, I mean, we'll know for sure very soon, uh, but it doesn't look like that agreement is going to go anywhere. And um, just makes you wonder if this whole drama between uh, the White House and Bibi coming to speak before uh, uh, Congress a few months ago wasn't just uh, some big kind of show. Yeah, theater. Yeah, well, theater I, of the absurd. I think that I think the problem is actually you know the the cause of all this controversy. It really comes back to this one, you know, State Department memo, and you know, the the one guy reading it, he was and he was responsible, and he didn't know much about the Middle East, and so he he read about you know Israel having nuclear weapons, and he he you know just he had a brain fart, he thought it said Iran, and so this whole thing has started in response to that. Is that it? Yeah, and so so you know because U.S. politicians aren't very intelligent, so they just took this guy in his word because most of them can't read, and so so this whole thing has been over over Iran supposedly wanting these nuclear weapons and having this nuclear weapons program. And it turns out the whole time it's been Israel. And they already had nuclear weapons. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, this is a new revelation that, you know, I, we just, I just, I've got a secret source in the state department and they let me know that Hmm. it was all just a misreading of Israel for Iran. So I think that now that this information is out, the only proper course of course, is just this, change Iran and all these documents, you know, just change the wording and put Israel in there. And then, uh, you know, then we can have sanctions against Israel. We can have a world outcry against, you know, Israel having this illegal nuclear arms armament weapon supply. Causing chaos in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, who'd have thunk it that it was Israel the whole time doing all these dastardly deeds. Yeah, all they had to do was read uh, read that book by Seymour Hersh, the Samson Option, and they'd know that uh, you know it, there's um, there's a, a reason why Israel has had nuclear bombs for uh, several decades now, mm-hmm. and that they are pretty serious about uh, holding it over everyone's head. Well, there must be changes afoot because I, you know, there could be the possibility of a woman president, you know, after Obama. Oh God, you had to go there. <laughs> Not the gender part, no. no. But where you're going with it? Okay. Well, that's go ahead, that's, that's just that's just what you see, you know. With uh, that's what people's are you know, concern is over, and um, with the new president and or you know who the president new president could be, and you know it's just like a replay of you know what we saw kind of with Obama and. You know, people put their faith in, you know, these these things that, you know, are just really very superficial. And, you know, when you get to um, what's going on underneath, you know, it's same boss. Well, of course, we're talking about uh, Hillary, political animal, Clinton and um, devil incarnate. Yes, she really is so evil. There was a there was a documentary. Was, Witch of the West. <laughs> <laughs> there was a documentary I was watching. Um, you know, just bit, bits and pieces. You know, talking about her past and, <clears throat> I mean, the there's some really shady dealings that they've had, and you know, it looks like this whole laundry list of, you know, assassinations of, of these people um, that have been going on, you know, for for years, especially uh, uh, as uh, Bill Clinton was was uh, in power and. 
uh, as a governor in Arkansas. And, you know, it's, it, it really kind of reminds me of, and I wonder if, uh, the creators of House and, uh, House of Cards created, uh, the Underwoods based on the, uh, Clintons, cause the parallels are just like, ooh, you know, kind of, kind of creepy, but, um, well, she, she helped destroy Libya. Yeah. And then she laughed about it. Yeah. She laughed about it. I mean, she, she has, she's made the lives of, uh, millions of people. She's destroyed the lives of millions of people by, by spearheading that whole effort. And I mean, when you look at Gaddafi and, you know, what he was creating, um, you know, it's, it's such, uh, a travesty and, uh, you know, it's beyond, uh, travesty, uh, to see, you know, this wonderful man, you know, who is doing such amazing things, uh, for, not only his people, but, you know, the, the potential that he was creating for, for all of Africa. And, uh, and then that, you know, that clip where mm-hmm. she's talking about, we came, we saw, we killed and, you know, and then he died and he died. And, you know, and then her, her vicious laughter at the end, it's, uh, you know, it's just so appalling, um, that, that people could, you know, think that there's, even the remote possibility of, you know, something good in her and, you know, that she could represent, uh, the people or, or even, even women. I mean, she's, there's nothing, uh, creative or feminine about, about this woman. And, you know, she's just cold to the core. It, it irks me, uh, every time I, I read somewhere that she was like, you know, voted number one most uh, admired woman for several years in a row or something. Uh, you know, and people who don't know better. Um, because they don't, because we're not telling them because we're doing all these things. And we, uh, you know, it's like one of the things I hear from some people is, oh, but she's so intelligent. Yeah. She's also a monster. Uh, you know, being intelligent doesn't mean that you're going to be benevolent. Uh, being intelligent doesn't mean that you have any, you have a constructive bone in your body. She's a political animal. She, you know, her, her whole, uh, reason for being is, is to accrue power. Uh, I mean, that, that's so much of, I think what her relationship, uh, with, with Bill is based on, uh, okay. Now it's your turn. Okay. Now it's my turn. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like you said, it's appalling. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I wish I wish more people had a better understanding of of what this person is. Um, yeah, and rant. Well, it'll be interesting, you know, if she does become president. Uh, you know, one of her big uh, initiatives under Obama was the uh, New American Pacific Century, and you know, it is. On the surface, it was, you know, pretty words with about, you know, relationships with China. But, you know, underneath that, it was all about, you know, so-called containment of China. And, you know, what we've been reading in the news, you know, for you know these past months, you know, it's just been that that whole plan and idea is just being blown away. You know, we see China, you know, forming all these relationships um these new relationships with uh, countries like, you know, Vietnam and uh, Taiwan. And it's, um, um, 
you know, it, it's really encouraging to see uh, these new worlds uh, being built uh, despite uh, what the United States has been trying to, you know, accomplish, um, you know, over, over these past years. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't, well, we do know that, you know, nothing is going to change, you know, the direction is not going to change uh, no matter who uh, is installed uh, as president of the United States. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's just a very superficial uh, position anyway. You know, there's, there's all these, uh, power relationships under underneath and behind. So, you know, whoever is an off, you know, it doesn't really matter. Well, folks, I think that's going to bring it to an end for this week on the truth perspective. Uh, we hope you had a good listen and, a, and an interesting time and maybe picked up a, a thing or two. Um, next week, we have a very interesting guest. Um, and uh, we hope you tune in. Uh, her name again, Harrison, is... Looking it up right now. Yeah. First name's Tammy. I know her first name. Yes. But uh, she's going to be speaking about uh, child protective services and some of the shady stuff that goes on in there. So about the work that she's been doing and, um, you know, some of the things that she's uncovered um, and, you know, just things related to that particular topic. So, yeah, we'll be having her on next week. And, yeah, let's see. I should have had this ready. I wasn't prepared, Elon. <laughs> You're on the spot. Uh, well, it, it, it's going to be an interesting show. She's got... Tammy um, Stefano. Tammy Some uh, I was watching uh, some YouTube interviews with her this morning, and... Uh, She's got some very scary and uh, but interesting anecdotes about um, the types of things that uh, child protective services are um, are pulling. And the uh, dark, uh, dark underside, underbelly of uh, child child services, mm-hmm. child welfare. Yeah. So, until then, folks. Thanks for listening. Take care. All right. Bye bye. See you guys. Bye bye. <laughs>